Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Groovy. So, MB. Would you want to live in the world of Green World? If you would, you live in the Green Room. Would I live in the Green Room? The, you, if you had to, is that a place you could live? I mean, if I had to, it's not really a choice. I mean, you get like point, cool music every day. That is true, but it's like you also just don't have a toilet. There's well, yeah, they could probably like have Patrick Stewart hand you a bucket in exchange for your gun. Wait, are you but, just but, describing but, the plot of the movie Room? <laughs> MB, would you live room? I. This is going in a completely different direction than I thought it would, but here, here's my whole scenario. Like, if I reached for the bucket, would Patrick Stewart then chop into my hand with a big gaping wound that I would have to do up with duct tape? Like, would 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 all of this just become a nightmare scenario? I can't say yes or no. That's part of the exhilaration of living in Green Room. I'm sorry. I'm still on Green World. Green world. <laughs> You're actually asking if you'll live in the green from That's Swamp. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> no, Green World. It's it's the sequel that never happened to Waterworld. Although you say uh, it was a sequel to Green Room that never happened, where it's like it it becomes essentially the plot of Lawnmower Man two. But no, you got uh, following the naming convention. So there's Green Room. The next one has to be like Green Mansion, and then Green Taj Mahal. No, but I like the idea of Patrick Stewart becoming a um, racist computer virus. <laughs> that takes over the world, and then all of the punk bands have to unite to defeat him. That sounds so goddamn eighty. Racism is online. Oh my god, we've got a poster. Uh, hello, what everyone. is this, a documentary? <laughs> Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop <laughs> podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and green room. My name is Cody. Joining me are my co-hosts Mike, MB, and James. I am so glad you did not say the podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and racism. No, that's I uh, draw a line. If anything <laughs> so far, we're doing the 2016 film Green Room today, not Green World. I'm sorry, fans of Green Planets. Uh, no, that's Blue Planet. I'm thinking of Blue Planet. Oh God! Just can we just get to the? <laughs> we have to get to the movie. You you're all over the place. We were close. We were close to the movie. I was in a and trajectory your connection screwing up. So that's good. Oh, really? Do you have Wi-Fi on your phone? Uh, I do. Turn it off. Okay, we'll go with that. All right, fine. On topic for Green Room. Uh, let's try something a little bit different than normal, guys. Let's actually introduce people to the world of Green Room in case they saw our podcast, randomly listened to it, and they haven't seen the film. Did you say randomly or rambly? Randomly. Because both be work with our podcast. It really does. Yeah, <laughs> you know, someone, someone stumbled down an internet hole and landed face first onto our podcast, and then now they're hearing about Green Room. Okay, here, here's, an, here's an introduction to this podcast and to the movie Green Room. You are put into a scenario where you have no idea what's going on, <laughs> and there's a potential that Patrick Stewart will show up and kill you with dogs. That is both this podcast and the movie Green Room. But uh, podcast the movie will have more punk rock than what we can provide you. I'm sorry, but we do have our limits. On the plus side, we will have less neo-Nazis. So, good bet. Less. Less. Well, see, we have to discuss neo-Nazis since we're talking about Green Room. So, uh, inherently, we get some. So, is this just going to turn into the thing where we all have to test our blood to make sure it doesn't recoil in horror of other of people of color and other race. Uh, we just show our blood a photo of Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> That's the test. Someone puts it together in two seconds. And then one I, of us becomes a stop motion effect. I do want the folks at home to know that this podcast is a party and not a movement, though. And I think that's important. <laughs> <laughs> It's I like a party us just where... talking around the movie, not really talking about the movie. That's, we, we started off by saying we are going to describe the film, which makes it seem like we're going to be spoiler-free. That's a lie. From this point, I'm drawing a, a line in the sand. There will be spoilers. Green Room dies at the end. I want everyone to know that now. So, way, and... to, way to ruin everything. <laughs> uh, so, MB, you actually just saw Green Room uh, today, correct? 
for the yeah. first time? Yes, actually not too long before we came on to record. So it, it's um, fresh in your brain. I want to get your opinions and thoughts on it. The rest of us obviously enjoy the film since we're willing to sit down and discuss it. But well, you were kind of dragged into this. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what your opinion is. Well, to start things off, I also want to make clear it's like all for the majority of us, I think, is this is actually the first time that we've seen it not too long ago. I mean, I think everyone had seen it before today except for me. But, Mike, you had seen it very relatively recently James, I believe the same thing. Cody, I think you're the only one who had seen it uh, years like back when I actually, or at least sometime when it actually premiered or came out, right? Yeah, this was a fit of inspiration on Cody's part. I, yeah. I just kept bullying you guys into into doing the show until eventually it happened. And I'm glad you did because actually this ended up being a really interesting, like there seems to be a trend now with a lot of movies where there's like the bottle film where it all takes place in one set location and suspense and a thriller is built off of that. Like you see that with 10 Cloverfield Lane. You see that with a lot of other films that we've covered in the past. I mean, to some extent, you even see that kind of with like films like Dread, where it's all just kind of built off of this premise of, OK, one location. What can you do and how imaginative can you get? And I have to say this movie is one of the more imaginative ones that I've seen because it takes the idea of the one setting location and really plays around with the world around the location. It makes the location itself almost seem like a world into itself because it has a lot of like, obviously it has all the, this, you know, neo-Nazi propaganda that makes everything really unsettling and uncomfortable and off kilter to everything. Literally everyone does because you can look two seconds away and it's like, there's a, there's a swastika behind them on a wall or something there's heavy rock music playing uh it's just this atmosphere that's very unique but at the same time it plays on horror tropes that are very familiar in a new way which i I thought was actually really kind of inventive and clever because this is a setup that is very familiar but also one that i haven't really seen done in a film like this i haven't seen the like the road trip band type of scenario play out in a way to where it becomes what it becomes. Like usually whenever there's a movie like this, the setup is, you know, someone gets injured very early on or someone has to go somewhere very early on. And then the rest of the film, you know, they have to stay within that confined space. Like even in dread, they go to that certain, they go to mama's complex very early on. And then most of the movie takes place there. This movie feels like most of it takes place in and around the actual green room, but the green room itself is still integral. And it still feels like it still manages to feel like a bottle movie, which is interesting because it's played up as their fortress whenever they have to defend themselves. It's played up as their safe space. They're the place where they actually have the most control. Whereas outside, literally every corner you go to, you have an absence of control because, you know, Patrick Stewart has his goons and then there's roaming dogs and like all these things that could come out at you, like a weird urbanistic haunted house type of scenario. And the actual green room itself is a bunker. It's above a bunker. And it's also just that space is one that they get really creative with. I, I really loved particularly the scene where uh, Pat and Amber actually, managed to make a trap out of the green room and lure like two of the neo-Nazis in and managed to make this scenario play out to where you think it's going to go one way. It goes a completely different way that messes up. It goes a completely different way from that. And then the resolution actually ends up being something that you did not expect at all and ends up with what I really, really love, which is, Someone technically died in this movie by way of couch. <laughs> <laughs> so Green Room is very, very cool and just the inventiveness of it. And just, of course, it's very prevalent in today's modern society and today's political climate of who the villains are. And we, we will be getting into that pretty heavily. But I just want to give props to just the sheer cleverness of how to take a very bare bones situation like with 10 Cloverfield Lane, especially. And that I'd seen that uh, 
just as recently as last year, and that's why it's so fresh on my mind. But it's, you know, it's kind of a scenario that, and Ten Clover Hill Lane is a great movie, but it's a scenario that seems custom fit to benefit that type of a story, whereas this, they really have to make a story out of what's in there. You can't just look at that and say, okay, well, obviously, if you were trapped in here, that would make like a great bunker, that would make a great fortress. They have to make a fortress out of, you know, couches, they have to take the bunker and just kind of play around with it a little bit to make it more palpable for their needs. They have to do very bare bones and basic things to keep themselves alive, barely succeed, and then manage really only to get victories in very human ways. Like, they don't manage to get over the top with it. Like, the most over-the-top thing that anyone does at any point is Pat holds a microphone up to a speaker, and that gets the dogs to stop attacking and run away. Like, that's the most out there that the movie gets, apart from just the sheer gore. Yeah, it's it's a really kind of a chess dodgeball type idea where they run out of their, their trenches to the front lines, get set back, and have to retreat back to the green room multiple times. They can never get out of that space, and it's fascinating because they don't want to be there. They really don't want to be there. It's a bad spot, but it's the only spot that's safe. So what do you do at that point? And I love the complicated back and forth because the villains can't leave them there. If the neo-Nazis leave them in that spot, they can get in a lot of trouble. People can find out exactly what they're up to. So they have to somehow route these guys out. So yeah. it's it's a lot of a Mexican standoff kind of thing. Like both sides really do have some leverage and it's not a good situation for anyone, even though it seems like Patrick Stewart holds all the cards. And it does very much feel like there's a villain in this that is completely on top of everything. He's two steps ahead of literally every question anyone asks of him. And it's still feels like they're desperate. It still feels like this is a situation to where they're literally on a time crunch, which I thought was really genius of the script because they could honestly just, if they had hold themselves up, then the villains might've actually been taken out just by the cops eventually, you know, getting wise to what's going on. And I, I like the fact that they're acknowledging that and the fact they bring attention to that several times. And Patrick Stewart, like his final scene is just him trying to, set up the murder scene that is hastily being thrown together under his direction. But, you know, he still is clever enough to come up with that. It's just, it just has to be done by this, you know, by the fly, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you listen to the commentary, the director does kind of touch on the fact that most movies try and get away from the minutia of those type of things. Just in this case, Patrick Stewart actually carrying out his plot. And he didn't want to go for that. He wanted to, he was fascinated by it. So he wanted to show those little moments, like when they're going through the car, looking for, uh, I'm sorry, going through the Ain't Rights van, trying to find some something to use against them. Or one of my personal little touches in the film, when they're all waiting around, trying to figure out what to do next and let the dogs in, Patrick Stewart stops mid-sentence and goes, what did we forget? And then it cuts to the the band leaving, trying to leave with their new accomplice who then gets shot in the head because Patrick Stewart figured out just a split second before them what their plan was. It's not in most movies where the villain just knows and it's a surprise to us. We know Patrick Stewart knows something is up, so we expect something's going to happen, but they didn't give us the full line. So we know bad shit's about to hit the fan. We just don't know what direction it's coming from, which excellent way to set up suspense and surprise. There are also a lot of like really cool, like, misdirection moves where you you see one of the members of the band crawl out of a window and you think oh my god did you just find a way out immediately get stabbed just viciously stabbed and it's not even it doesn't really hold on it and make it a gore fest it's just it just he just gets killed that's it oh, he even yeah. like he's still bleed he's still breathing and Stewart just says you know to just let him bleed and it, like it, and there's a reason for it. I love that. Like, there's actual thought being put into every moment of this movie where these characters are making decisions that you really don't look at them and say you're stupid for that unless you're specifically meant to. Yeah, they're put into a bad spot. And it's basically, what would you do in a panic? And that does always frustrate me when people say, oh, it's a plot hole because all of a sudden they forgot to use how to, be, uh, how to use a shotgun. Now, in the real world, if you're under duress and you're not proficient with guns... If you just stole a shotgun from some guy trying to murder you and tried to turn around and shoot a charging Rottweiler, I don't think there are Rottweilers in the movie. I can't remember what kind of dog it was. They're pit bulls. Pit bulls, thank you. You would probably miss. It's very unlikely you'd actually hit your target. But like most people assume they'd be good under pressure, and no. 
Humans are almost always super awkward unless they spent years practicing to do something. Physically, we are very ungraceful. Especially us. Uh, particularly us. That's why we do podcasts, so no one has to see us even being awkward at podcasting. Yeah, one of the things Sonner said in the commentary that really fascinated me was he had a strict moratorium on any and all movie bullshit with the plot of this film. Everything had to be cause and effect. So it didn't matter if it matched a, a character arc he had in mind or if it necessarily served a greater purpose for the story. If a character reached a point where that dude would logically die, that dude died, which I really respect for a thriller because you really don't see cause and effect carried through like that. For sure. Husband really doesn't give a fuck about uh, not taking that visceral nature that's the film's setting up home, where characters can just drop out of nowhere mid-plot. Mid-plot for themselves. Because it doesn't matter. No, this is what the situation's calling for. And that's the energy of the film. And unlike something like Red State, which I felt was a movie where everything just kind of happens in a vacuum and just that kind of takes me out of the third act of that movie is just everyone is shot pretty much. And then it turns into a sequence almost where everyone is shot. This happens for a specific definable reason, which is they left the green room. They decide to charge. Two of them die immediately. They go back. They go for another run. One of them dies and there's, there's only two left. It's, it's just, it, keeps happening because they keep doing like they tried doing the same thing twice and that's the reason that more than half of them die and that's not something that you would really see in a typical horror movie you would see like okay well two from the original group have to make it because you know that's that otherwise you're playing with audience expectations and like you you would have all these really dumb justifications for keeping around certain people and you would have like obviously you're you're not gonna kill off the main lead character, and I think that's the only real caveat that they had to make is that Anton Gelkin had to make it through the actual movie, but And even then, a, if I can interrupt, I mean that was they still managed a way to find no, uh, they still managed to find a way to sideline him. When they yeah. cut his arm all up, it looks like his character's done, and he's not even leading the plot at that point. He's just kind of carried along. Well they have him carry out like a whole action scene where he's crippled, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, he's still a major character and he comes into play, but it feels like at that point they're casting that character to the side and someone like Tiger is going to be our new lead. I think the important or, thing as well is characters, the characters who die don't die for the expected reasons based on archetype. Like no. the hot-headed guy doesn't die because he's he's hot-headed. He just fucking dies. Like, but, none of, but none of it is change. random at all, which yeah. I love. I, it's, I'm so impressed with how that was pulled off. And even beyond that, uh, going beyond the non-random thing, it's fairly plot-dense for something that's a simple scenario at first blush. Sure. Like, as it goes through, there are all sorts of layers that we kind of expound on. Like, it's not just someone stabs someone else and this band is stuck in a room. All of a sudden, you find out, well, there's drug deals going on, and they're really trying to protect their drug trade. And then you find out there's a love plot going on behind the scenes, and that story got ruined because, you know, the affair was exposed. And the drug trade just happened to be in the same spot. And it just folds over itself a bunch of times. And it really messes with Patrick Stewart's ability to plan things or changes his path. And as viewers, we're not necessarily spoon-fed this information. So you almost have to watch it once or twice more to figure out all how those little pieces connect properly. It's, it's almost Cohen without that sensibility. I do love the fact that they portray a set of villains like neo-Nazis and really make them to where... What's unsettling about them is that this is just normal to all that. Like everything that happens, the concert, the even to the the actual death scenario of this is just kind of downplayed and made more realistic. And I think the more realistic it is, the more horrifying it is because you realize there are people like this in real life. All like the, beyond beyond just the racism aspect is just there are people who would probably see that kind of murder scene and be like okay, I already have a plan to put a motion for this. We just need to actually do it. And that's how Patrick Stewart's Darcy comes about, because he's just a guy who just... There's no, like, over-the-top nature to him. There's no, like, grandiose supervillain element to it, despite the fact that it's Patrick Stewart, which I think is a genius part on the casting, and just... 
he's just a guy in a truck who comes down and is like, oh, crap. These people are in my building. My name is on all of this. <laughs> Patrick Stewart has said on many occasions. <laughs> One of the things Sonner said that I found really fascinating, especially given that it's a movie about neo-Nazis, was that the philosophy uh, to this story is that every character is just a dumb kid who's in over his head, including the villains. Yeah. Darcy is the only actual villain. All the skinheads are just being manipulated by him because well, someone wanted to make money. Well, that's what's interesting to me about the use of punk in the film, because it's a very, um, like, the basic setup for the film, as MB was saying, is, like, it's almost very uh, 80s. Like, a band goes here, it becomes a siege film, very Carpenter or Craven or, of course, Hitchcock. Hitchcock. But the use of punk um, is interesting because it's not done for the sake of a soundtrack or even the sake of energy, though it does come into play plot-wise, kind of circles back around to it. But it's two essentially anti-conformist group archetypes. Uh, one, of course, being uh, white supremacist fascists, and the other punk rockers. And me, the way that works in an interesting kind of deconstruction way to that plays on human nature is the Ain't Rights... Like, they're trying to go very hard-lined into, like, the, plas the classic, grungy, punk lifestyle of yesteryear. Like, they're talking about no social media presence, you have to be there, it's all about the live shows. But, you know, they're also just sort of adopting this. They don't need to. Like, it's them adopting a lifestyle and kind of forcing it upon themselves. They're, they actually really like Prince. They're like, exactly, like, that actually plays a lot into it because you see the like because like when it comes to punk nature it's like it's play violence essentially like ask any any punk like, other than crust punks of course but ask any punk like punk band or anything it's all just fucking play violence essentially no matter how rough things get like there's uh you know how no matter how rough a mosh pit gets there's a form of consent of being in the mosh pit and then you see that butt up against real violence, and then you see, like, real visceral, hardcore violence. Like, I love the, how the effects are played in the film, not for shock value, but to, like, bring this point home, is you see that punk mentality melt away, and you get the real people underneath, because, like, that shit's done. And, and, and to, no, go on. Uh, just to butt in a little bit, too, I think he's trying to make a point about how often we adapt labels without them truly representing us on a deep exactly. level. I mean, you've got these guys who claim to be hardcore neo-Nazis, and they, they talk all throughout the movie about we need a true believer. And there's certain characters who get to points where they're like, no, I, I, this isn't about me. The whole thing is kicked off, essentially, because one of the girls thought it was more important to run off with someone she loved rather than be a part of this movement. Uh, Amber even talks about how she's not really part of it. It was just convenient for her, is what she was around even though everyone wants to label, label her with it, she doesn't want to associate with it anymore. Uh, the, the kids, I mean, like you mentioned, they're actually fans of Prince. When it comes down to it, most of them are not hardcore punks. It's just kind of something they have to adapt to because that's the expected label. Uh, you see it in the apartment when they mention, you know, oh, this guy's the real deal, and someone else gives him shit because what? He wakes up at 5 a.m. to put chis in his hair? Like, there, there's so much attention just to the superficial aspects of being punk that they don't quite understand maybe the deeper meanings of the group they're in, and you which see, is something you can definitely look at it with Nazis. Like, do you guys really appreciate the horrible shit you're saying and doing? You're or is really it just because you're in a brotherhood? <laughs> or is it just because it's convenient and you've got people that can support you in this group and it's a brotherhood? Yeah, and, and more so even than the uh, the Nazis that, you know, turncoat. This, this point is, like, illustrated beautifully just at the end with the dog coming back, which you think is going to be this big thing, and it just lays down with its dead master and is sad. It's like, oh, this is kind of about nature. This movie, like, with all the moments that you're talking about and just moments that are replaying in my head, this movie does a really good job of taking a lot of different just expected roads and completely flipping them, like, pretty much at every turn. Uh, early on, there's a scene where I think Tiger or Reese, one of the dude, I, th I think the I think Reese is in the back of the van 
and he turns to Pat and he says, you know, there, there's something I got to tell you, something that, that I have never even told anyone. And he just lingers on him and lingers on him. And Anthony Elkin gives like this dramatic look. And it's after they've had like this sprawl with this one dude who kind of stepped them on a gig and he just farts and they just laugh about it and just drive on. And while that's just kind of a, like, it's, it's a comedy moment. It's just, it's just kind of there. That sets up the tone for the rest of the movie where, okay, Pat decides when they get to the neo-Nazi place that he's got a stupid idea and he's going to carry it out. And the Ain't Rights sing an anti-Nazi song to the neo-Nazis. And then they continue on with their concert. You think that that's where the conflict is actually going to come from. That's where my head was, is that that's where the conflict was going to be. And that's where everything was going to go wrong. Well, they were just going to let them go anyway. Nothing bad really happened because of that. It's just it's a murder happened. Like, like this movie does such a great job of just playing on your, essentially your detective vision for movie plots and just saying, oh, you think this is what is going to happen? Well, normally in a normal movie, that might be the case, but we decided we want to do something different. So this is a completely different scenario that is almost more realistic and more horrifying for that. Like Mike was saying with the kills, they aren't lingered on. Like, none of the gore is lingered on. Like, people get their throats ripped out by dogs. People get their faces shot off. And you see it for a split second, but that's it. It's just a split second because it just happens. That's 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 not the point. It's The point is that they died. The point is that they were murderers. Not that they, like, had their throat ripped out and look at all the blood and that's uh... cool. Yeah, essentially, like it's it's all the stuff that you would expect out of a horror movie, just completely taken and just given a shake, given a shake and essentially say, like, what are you doing? Like, do this more, do this more cleverly. Well, you see that a lot in Solner's last movie, Blue Ruin, where anytime violence is used, it's used to show how horrible and evil it is to hurt another human being, which I really appreciate. Also, uh, to tag on up on what you were saying a moment ago, as far as all of the reversal expectations, that's the thing that makes me truly love this film, which is punk rock not only influences the story and the uh, philosophy behind it, the filmmaking to this movie is punk rock. No. Like, Sonner even said that that affected things like the budget. Like, part of the reason you barely see Patrick Stewart is he was really tickled by the idea of spending all this money on Patrick Stewart and then just hiding him for most of the movie and sometimes just showing his voice. Like, Which also, it works so well because it, it influences the fact that you don't need a meetup between the kids. It wouldn't make sense. The kids should be confused and this guy should be mysterious to them this evil voice on the other side of the door who orchestrates their doom you don't need them to see eye to eye with patrick stewart the entire movie and have a face-off moment and even when you do you get the whole line about uh, you know you were a lot scarier at night because he's yeah. just a sad old man yeah there's this great moment where darcy's talking to his goons uh, before the club clears out and they just pass by a live rock show that's happening in progress. And Sonner said he intentionally set that up and spent all of that money, set up that scene, so you could see it in the background for a split second and then move on because the movie is too punk to pay attention to expensive things. <laughs> and I fucking love that. Like what? Nothing but pure irreverence for production value and star power must be shown. <laughs> what I love about that scene, too, is just I kept picturing in my head what Patrick Stewart was like on set that day because he had to pass loud music and he's old. <laughs> like, how annoyed must he have been that he had to do multiple takes where he's just walking through a live punk performance which, I mean, I don't know Patrick Stewart personally, but I don't think that would be his musical preference, though I may be surprised. You'll never know him now because you ticked him off. He's probably up and trending. He's like, look at this fucking idiot. He was going to be on the next episode. Oh, uh, MB. We were going to talk about the Emoji movie. <laughs> I wanted to talk about... Oh, uh, well, nope. Emoji movie would come first. Definitely first. 
But yeah, just just the mental image of of Sir Patrick Stewart and you know Charles Xavier just going through this setting. Like that's that's part of the hilarity of this is just it's so against type. Like even the casting is punk because Patrick Stewart is just so against type of the kind of character that this would be. This would normally be like a Peter Stormare type or someone who really chews the scenery or something like that. This is the most understated I've ever seen Patrick Stewart play a character. Oh, it's mumblecore Stewart. (laughs) And to harp on the punk rock thing just a little bit longer, can can we just reflect for a moment on the sheer brilliance of the end of this movie where (laughs) the remaining member of a punk band says, fuck, we don't actually know how to fight. Let's just crazy pretend punk rock fight our way out of this, exactly and it works that's fucking anarchy in the usa up in this bitch so we're just let's i'm just gonna cut my hair and start screaming with a machete for no reason to confuse them <laughs> and that actually happened to solner like the paintball story of them yes. fighting the marines and deciding oh we have to pretend fight our way out of here that just happened to him <laughs> like a lot of stuff in this movie is just shit that really happened to Sauter in his life. Like like the Nazi punk band in this movie is just a real punk band he used to tour with that scared the shit out of him. Memories. Like he said, a lot of the violence in this movie is just horrifying, violent images he's had in his head since childhood that he was trying to exercise out of there. Like the uh, murder that instigates the film is just a prison shanking he saw on a late-night cable documentary once that gave him nightmares for years. Because, uh, Sonner definitely, like we said earlier, just, that's a dude who knows and respects how fucking horrifying violence is and understands uh, a movie's capacity for uh, not just, like, showcasing something like that, but really, really making you think about just how desensitized you've become. Oh yeah, it is so rare to see someone who actually takes a look at violence and approach to violence in the way that it's meant to be. Because I would say like 99% of everyone working in the industry sees violence as just, oh, it's just a thing. It's just a part of, it's a, it's a storytelling tool. And that's the way the audience is too. It's like, that, that's kind of what makes this movie perfect is just like a spring trap that you can set onto any potential viewer because they're used to a certain level of violence and a certain portrayal of that level of violence. They don't expect it to be treated as bad. They don't expect it to be treated as something where it's like you can just kind of laugh off or just kind of enjoy in any way. It's just it's there and you, it leads to bad things that happen to the characters that you've built up this entire half of this movie really liking and really appreciating because they're portrayed as likable. Like, there's no real unlikable member of the Ain't Rights. Uh, so whenever one of them is killed, you actually feel it because it's just that was the death of someone that you were actually just you were, you were fond of and you, you really liked the presence of because... Each one of them contributes something in their own way to the group dynamic and kind of gives their own cut. Like even the guy with rage issues still has something to contribute at the end of the day and something that's useful and very positive in this situation, which is he got he holds the dude in a uh, headlock. Like it's so interesting the way that the characters are just kind of made to be like these characters that no one is really necessarily the out of the guy. Like, no one's a character that is obviously not meant to be within this group. Oh, the and, stock douchebag who Jason kills first. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we could spend, and probably will spend, a lot of time talking about purveyors of violence and the people that believe in those violent philosophies. But before we jump into discussing Nazis, uh, I do want to make one quick return back to the idea of this film taking the ideas of punk and applying them in actual filmmaking techniques. There's one moment that really stands out to me as a fantastic touch where the band is playing, they're playing their actual set, and all of a sudden it switches to slow motion and you get classical music over top of the punk band playing. You don't hear the punk music anymore, you hear classical music in slow-mo, which seems very out of place with the rest of the film, but it works perfectly because it goes back to the idea that 
Uh, I think this is a quote I stole from the director. Punk is about being there and creating an environment. You can't recreate what the band is trying to do because if you could, there wouldn't be a need for live concerts. You would have to be there listening to the band play it live to get the full experience he's trying to communicate. So what he does instead is he gives an impression of it by going the complete opposite direction. He slows down time. He changes out the music for something very euphoric. And it gives a great insight into maybe the, the rush that these characters have or the feeling of performing that isn't just literally portraying them doing the thing. It's the closest you can get to maybe feeling what that environment would be. Exactly. And I, I just thought that was a brilliant way of doing that. Plus, it, it, it's a great sequence in just taking a moment to show the beauty of music and how it completely changed that, you know, tense situation with the, uh, the Kennedy song playing and then going to that and then everybody just sort of coming together despite their complete different ideologies that are going on. See, really, that should have been the movie right there. They're just immediately murdered after singing Nazi pucks fuck off. <laughs> and before we do get into the heavier stuff, because I feel like that's kind of a road that is just kind of inevitable, I do really want to take at least a portion of this and devote it to the fact that, God, it is such a tragedy that Anton Yelkin died yeah. just oh, yeah. right after this, because... This performance that he puts into this movie, and I've, I've been a fan of this dude for years, like beyond just Star Trek and all that. Like, I even loved him in Terminator Salvation. I, I loved him in, like, just... Fright Night every, Forever. Yeah, pretty much every time he showed up on screen, it was just kind of a delight. And this performance particularly in Green Room was one of easily one of his best of his entire career. And it's so understated, but he gets to play it to where it builds and builds and builds and builds over the course of the film because he starts off very everyman. And that's really the appeal of his acting style. But he also gets to go to places in this that feel very different and feel very out of this character's comfort zone. I really loved how he put pretty much everything he had into every single moment of this performance. Like you feel like this was tailor made for him in a way. And I'm not just kind of saying that because of course now, he unfortunately passed in a freak accident, but just looking back on this and with perspective that he's not with us anymore, it's just like, God, it's it's like with Heath Ledger all over again. It's just like, what an insane loss because he was just so insanely young at the time. Because all you can think about is like what amazing performances he would have turned in in the future because he was going to. I mean, he... Even, oh, and he was so young, too. He had so yeah. many more years to develop his craft, and it was already at a high level. Oh, yeah. It can't be overstated enough just how much he elevates this movie, despite playing a role that, honestly, he's not the hero. He's not the hero archetype. He's not someone who steps up to the plate and is someone you really root for on any, like, macho level. He's just kind of, he's there. He's just kind of a kid, and he's just a kid put into this situation and he just has to do the best with what he can. And Yelkin just brings so much to that that could have been really poorly handled under a lesser actor. I think it says a lot to the credit of Anton Yelkin's performance in this movie that he was only supposed to cry once at the very end, and it was supposed to be a really quiet movie cry. But Yelchin got so damn worked up in these scenes and embraced the reality and the horror of that story that he cries several times throughout the film, just on his own with no direction. Because was, that that's, what you would do, that's what you would do in that situation. And he right. got that. Yeah, it's just like when he's cut with the knife and he's just sitting there weeping because, god damn, he almost has his arm cut off. One, that's a very honest reaction. I feel like I'd probably do the same if someone almost amputated my arm. And two, really, how often do you ever see uh, the male lead of something that's ostensibly an action film do that? Yeah. And not in like a mocking way, just kind of as a, yep, that happened. That's a human reaction kind of way. What an auteur. Like, dude was a star. What a loss to this generation of cinema. Like, such oh, yeah. devastating loss. Yeah, and it's it's only going to make this film more legendary as time goes on, because of course nobody knew what was coming on. Of course nobody knew what was going to happen to Anton Yelkin, but it really plays like a movie that is his true swan song. It really plays like a full display of what he could do and what his talents were and how he could elevate material so well that 
in a way, I'm kind of just it, it's kind of comforting to know that this movie was one of his very last projects and he went out with a high because I feel like this movie is just the ultimate kind of tribute to his body of work. And, and he got to go out as an action hero. He did. He got to go out as Odin himself. Yeah, obviously, rest in peace, uh, Anthony Nelson. It's just, it's it's almost like kind of beyond words because when you watch it, you kind of feel it. Even it's just kind of a, it's an all encompassing experience, which is something that really made me even like the film more than I would have already just watching it cold. Another thing that uh, made it interesting to watch is when you take a look at things happening around us in the real world. And, <laughs> oh boy. Now that you're all sad, how about Nazis? Yeah. Can I, can I just point out the uh, blockbuster video style summary for this movie is a group of millennials have to head-on confront Nazis after initially laughing at them and not taking them as a serious threat. Huh. 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 Oh, if only that were fictional. The The amazing thing is this film was made... 2015, I want to say, and it kind of did a slow rollout. A24 picked it up. So it was a long process to come out. All this stuff was not made with the idea that we were going to have giant protests in this country over if you should punch a Nazi or not. That was not on the radar in any way. And now all of a sudden it's become very topical. And we're sitting here with this movie about punks versus Nazis and Nazi ideology and how people are being used by a charismatic, power hungry leader on the top and basically used up and thrown away. One one section that really catches me in the film is uh, Patrick Stewart is talking to one of his men, and he holds up a piece of evidence that he's found that was supposed to be destroyed. And he mentions the fact, hey, this was before your time, before you were a true brother. This is when you're still handing out pamphlets. Last Easter, which in my mind just makes it seem like he goes through people that goddamn fast that a year is a long time for him. Like, he just uses up, chews up people, throws them out, puts them in prison, constantly and they don't matter they're little people and all it does is promote the head guy's ideas and uh his his motives so racism really isn't what patrick stewart's all about it's just a great way for him to control the under people below him and it makes him more powerful so he just uses that as a program to lash everyone to his will yeah i find it fascinating that other than some casual old white guy racism darcy's not really a nazi he just knows Nazis are useful because they're dumb. Isn't it funny how really the biggest villainous quality of Patrick Stewart is the fact that he seems to be someone who sits on top of an empire built on his own sociopathic tendencies, goes through people like crazy who eventually get wise to what he is and probably just walk out or are ousted and thrown out by him. And is just someone who exists purely on the vitriol of others, something that he does not channel into or even really necessarily care about. It's just what's in it for him. Isn't it funny how we don't really know anyone in our lifetime in a very, very high position of office that could easily dictate the future of uh, the country we live in? It, isn't, isn't that funny? Sad. It it would be amazing to see Worm host the Emmys. That that would be actually pretty amazing. I want to see that. There it goes. And I mean, uh, currently, if anyone's listening to this in the year like 2040, it's 2017 right now. Uh, over the last few weeks in the news, if you ignore natural disasters, almost all of the press coverage has been focused on the fact that there have been uh, ultra-conservative, some would say nazi protests that have actually claimed the lives of other people. Uh, there's been counter-protests. The president has refused to come out and say, uh, you know, maybe being a Nazi is a bad thing, instead trying to mollify everyone by saying, you know, there's bad people on both sides. Well, he also flat out said, you know, there, there's violence on both sides. Look, if you're listening, if, the, if you're listening from 2040, I uh, just want to say, there was a thing once called America. <laughs> oh... It's uh, it's it's just very odd that the movie happens to play off all these ideas or even the very prominent placement of a Confederate flag in the green room and all the Nazi memorabilia. Yeah. And it seems like that's even more realistic now where we have people that are livid at the idea 
that you would want to take down uh, Confederate statues. I got into a screaming argument with a family member over that four hours ago. James is actually now wearing uh, a General Lee outfit by force. Like, it's been stapled to him. It's both funny and really sad, though I guess fortuitous for the film itself, that this uh, kind of small, subtextual uh, indie horror thriller has essentially become very much a horror movie for this generation, for this climate, uh, accidentally. It and reminds it's, it's a sad for the world at large, really. It reminds yeah. me very much of Night of the Living Dead and how yeah. there's not supposed to be any racial subtext to that movie, but because of the time it was released, there's totally racial subtext to that movie now. God, even just the, the fact... The casually the... innocent act of, hey, we got a good actor, let's just make him the main guy, but because he's black, all of a sudden that puts it in a new light because... You didn't put black guys in movies in starring roles like that before. Yeah, even the fact the band's called the Ain't Rights. Yeah. <laughs> that like, oh, really? that's a, an accident of history. Yeah, yeah that, one, that one legitimately had me like, wait a minute, that, that term didn't exist back then, right? All, like, I was really confused by that because I knew when this movie was made, and I feel like that term that they gave themselves was a relatively recent thing after the film. Yeah, I feel like it, it coincides with the rise of Breitbart News uh, yeah. to identify their supporters. And oh, it's amazing because it feels like forever that those guys have been around. But in reality, you know it can't have been that long. They really rose to prominence with the idea that Donald Trump could be a presidential candidate. So only a few years back did this small group of people, who knows how long they were around before, come to the surface and now there's something we have to deal with nationally every day that's yeah. that's kind of the terrifying thing to me we have yeah. the idea in this movie that there's a nazi bar which might seem outlandish 10 years ago but then you realize no this has always been here it's just been kind of lurking quietly in the oregon deep woods well just and the way that just getting dredged up it was just the way that it's so casually brought up like oh yeah it's a it's a nazi place just don't talk to them about their politics it'll be okay it makes it seem so, like, in that world, so commonplace, which, of course, it technically is. It was already, unfortunately. But now, just the way it's handled accidentally makes it so much more, unfortunately, realistic and topical to to today. In a world where you need to respect people's rights to be Nazis. Yeah, just like, oh yeah, the Nazi place, that's there. That's a normal part of everyday living now. Well, that's that's what is really horrifying about all this is like, you're talking about this idea of this bar being just in the backwoods and being a place that you could easily avoid. This could just become just normal in-town sort of places now. This is something that you could see rising up more in protest of what is happening, which is just... We, as a society, have been forced to blow back against this very outdated concept of what we thought was just a dead evil, suddenly bubbling back up to the surface, and we have to fight it again, so they become even more resistant. And there's that, there's that very similar, there's a very strong theme in the movie of the effects of avoiding the obvious, and... It's hard to look at today's climate and not see that as well, because it's like, as shocking as this all seems, we had warning. I mean, look at the internet over the last 15 years. Like, we saw an increase, like, we saw a slow indoctrination of angry young white dudes with the men's rights stuff and, like, the birther movement and the tea party and it's like, we saw a million little pinpricks of something horrible happening, but it took all of those splinter, crazy white people groups to come together over the past two years for America as a whole to say, oh, shit, we're, we're in a nightclub with Nazis and there's no out. We're all in the yeah, green it, room. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it really, like, I, I was about to say that, but I didn't mean it in a, in a way to where it's like, okay. This is this is clearly an allegory for what it's like. No, I it legitimately feels claustrophobic to live in this climate. It feels like something to where you really don't know how outnumbered you actually are. 
And that's a scary thought. That's actually a very sobering thought because you realize that what you thought you knew about your surroundings wasn't actually what you thought at all. And what's really, really bad is that it took electing a reality star into a game office, show host, a game show host to like someone who failed to sell stakes in the 90s to really bring this to a head and make it again like Darcy really make it something that he could just use as a platform to elevate himself he doesn't believe in this at all he's transparent in that we completely know what Trump's game is throughout every one of these situations throughout every one of these scenarios it's actually ludicrous how transparent it is but he just gets off on that he gets off on the fact that it's so transparent that it's so out there and in everybody's face and nobody can do anything about it because we've never dealt with anything this ludicrous in this modern of a time. We dealt with it in some ways with people like Nixon, but we didn't deal with it in a way that was just this comically absurd to the point that it gets scary because the absurdity of it really was played, but like even in the nineties with Timothy McVeigh and Waco and all that being like a cause for them to arm themselves in the, the South. That was something that was heavily in the media, but we all just wrote them off as dumb rednecks. And we continued to do that for 20, nearly 30 years. And they found a way to become a majority. Oh, well, if you believe the polls. Just to, just to illustrate something here as an experiment, uh, as MB was talking, I pulled up Facebook and just scrolled through my feed for a, not even a minute. And I landed on this story from WAOW Newsline 9 News. Monuments marked. Madison police are investigating graffiti found sprayed on a historical marker Wednesday near a synagogue. The words Trump rules and swastikas were found spray painted on the memorials. I, I haven't That's even... without trying. I didn't dig. I didn't search anything. I just literally flipped through my news and bumped into this. Uh, it was posted three hours ago. So part of the evening news for Wisconsin. I have an even faster Facebook test that I accidentally am exposed to every day. Look at the co top comment on literally every single post. Oh, classic cuck feminazi conspiracy. Fake news. It's like, this is a news story about a chili cook-off. Where are the cucks? I just see people wanting good chili. We Look, we all want good chili. Someday yes. I hope we can move back to a time where chili stories are only about chili. I think it'd be I think it'd be important if we didn't at least mention the fact that we are several weeks out from the Charlottesville riots and the fact that someone was literally killed during the midst of tiki torch wielding idiots who decided that because a college was rightfully going to take down a statue of Robert E. Lee that they were going to protest their right to history. They felt as if their history was being taken away for Confederacy. Yeah, it's not like they lost the uh, the most encroaching war that they've ever been a part of and have been pretty much irrelevant for the last century or so in terms of their standing in moral society. But Okay, know. I was prepared to lose our Nazi fans, but now we're losing the entire South. Good. <laughs> I, they go hand in hand at this point. Well, I, as somebody who's lived his entire life in the absolute under-toenail area of the South, I can say it, in the past few years, I've had to re-examine a lot of stuff I've been immersed in in my entire life. A lot of stuff that seemed very, very commonplace because it's so ridiculously ubiquitous. Like, things like the Confederate flag being everywhere down here and the never-ending refrain of the South will rise again, which just means eventually we're going to have an armed insurrection of the United States and we're going to reinstate slavery. That's all that means. <laughs> yet it's, yet that phrase gets tossed around like it's hello. I think the, I think it says a lot about the movie Green Room that in looking at this movie where a lot of horrifying things happen and people are shot, people are, you know, as said, they, they have their throats ripped out by dogs. Uh, there are people who are just eviscerated throughout the entirety of this movie. Even even the lead doesn't come away unscathed. 
the thing that horrified me the most about this and had me have the most visceral reaction was noticing whenever they first entered the green room, there was a bumper sticker on the wall that read anti-Nazi equals anti-white because the amount of times I have heard that in the past year and seen that in comments and places that you wouldn't ordinarily expect to just see that. Like James was saying, you, you see that on literally every talking head for any major story anywhere, no matter what the topic is, no matter what the subject is. That kind of sentimentality is just unfortunately very relevant because that is actually something that people actually believe and there are too many of them now for us to simply say oh well they, they don't matter they're, they're just wrong they actually do matter they're still wrong but they actually do matter because they are all around us it's just like the movie it is literally just we're in a tiny room they're in the hallways outside waiting with their pit bulls and all of those cyber bullies on Twitter have a president now. Who's with them on Twitter? I feel like this is a bad time to promote the fact we're on Twitter, but we're saying it a lot. <laughs> At box office pulp. <laughs> if you if you're fight, a Nazi, please send us complaints. If you want to fight neo-Nazism, follow us on Twitter. And also... It register do, to vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah do that, that too. That, 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 well, please that please find your polling place. Go register to vote. It's actually vote everything. Vote. And that read about what you're voting for. Actually, I voted out of spite, and it was very promising. I voted for a dead person just so some asshole couldn't get in and push out public funding in favor of private schools. But that's my personal <laughs> politics. Hey. I recommend everyone do it. Anyways. You, you, wrote, you wrote down poll, didn't you? <laughs> no. No, I should have. I voted for an actual dead woman because if she won, uh, they basically uh, the council she was a part of would just elect somebody themselves <laughs> to to put in there. And I, I trust the council much more than I trust the people running in this election. Anyways, please do your homework and vote in every small election because those build into big elections and have wider impacts. If you don't concentrate on what's happening in your neighborhood, uh, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. Everything groundswells, bottom up. Box Office Pulp recommends getting involved with your community. That was the most wholesome thing Box Office Pulp has ever said or believed. Box That's Office Pulp thing. wants to see the downfall of humanity come at your own hands. That's not true in this case. I feel like Box Office Pulp is fine with the downfall of humanity in different scenarios. Like, we want it to be something cool like outer space vampires, not, not what we currently have going. Wow, even Box Office Pulp guy hates Nazis. He should. Box Office Pulp guy just doesn't want the competition. Box office pulp guy has a complicated dark history that involves Nazis. It's too much to go into at the moment, but trust me, you, I don't care for them much. And you know what's going to happen if you don't get involved and if you continue to just ignore the Nazis at your doorstep? This movie will happen. Green Room. You, you will be... watch Alia Shawcat die. She will not be back for the next season of Arrested Development. You will live Green Room. I see what I did, full circle. I got, we'll be in Green World! <laughs> oh, we circled back around but in this... that horrible thing. That was and the most coherent this... ending for a box office pulp ever. We all have to leave immediately. We can never come back. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Fuck Goodbye, Nazis. everyone. Goodbye. Fuck Nazis. Fuck Nazis. Fuck the alt-right. Fuck Trump. And we all walk slowly out of the room, even though we're in our own houses, just flipping off our microphones. And we're now on a watch list. And like that, he's gone. I seriously do hope we like get some fucking like one star reviews on iTunes or something. Because at this point, like, if I want an angry review by a Nazi. That would be the best advertisement for the show. Or Frank Grillo. Apparently, he might be coming back for, uh, like, Avengers 4. He's hinted at some stuff, so I might have to eat some shit. I would love Crossbones to be resurrected by Thanos to become his Infinity Warrior. Look, how amazing would it be if in Avengers 4, Thanos just brought back all of the amazing actors who got killed way too early in Marvel films? Like, Lee Pace is back. (laughs) Hugo Weaving's back. Like, oh my god, yes, yes! Oh, they just do Marvel zombies. And I'm turning the recorder off. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight.
And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself, we now have <laughs> the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? They must. I don't, th- I don't think it. so. Let's go with, like, Image Odin. Look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn. He has Angela, who's like Lady Hercules. She is, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still yeah. legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's as guardian, I think it's it's fair play. So. Hey, she's not technically as guardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has like a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs> 